It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach, March 17th, 2008, show number 70. Many times we think of Rails development shops as being small, two or three person affairs. But when I was in San Francisco a few weeks ago, I went to Pivotal Labs. They have 40 or 50 developers all dedicated to working on Rails projects for startups and clients. I spoke with Ian McFarland there talking about the tracker program that they wrote to manage internal projects and client projects. We also talked about pair programming and being a product company versus a consulting company. The Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Atlantic Dominion Solutions, located at techcfl.com. ADS is a web development innovator that specializes in building user-focused Rails applications and enhancing their performance with Amazon Web Services. ADS also provides 24-7 monitoring and management of EC2 deployments, as well as fully managed hosting on virtual servers optimized for Rails applications. So, Jeffrey Grossenbach here in San Francisco with Ian McFarland at Pivotal Labs. Now, I was surprised. I thought I'd heard about Pivotal Labs from a variety of different sources. I thought it was just five or six people, but you've got a pretty, you know, almost a whole floor of a building and uh, 30, 40 people right here. Yes, and this is just the Rails practice. This is just the Rails? Okay, so you have other branches. Yeah, basically Pivotal has, uh, we've been doing Agile since the very beginning, Um, and we did that, started out in the small talk space, and since Java sort of started being where a lot of the Agile development was, We've done a lot of work in that in in the Java space for the last you know the last maybe ten years, um, and we saw a real opportunity with Ruby. Rob in particular had always liked Ruby as a language because it is very dynamic. You know, it gets around all the limitations. Java is a great language, but you know it gets around all these sort of limitations of not really being dynamic and not really being, you know. Just being able to do mix-ins is such a huge value add in terms of what Ruby has in terms of power and all the metaprogramming stuff that you can do with it. So he was really excited about Rails when he saw it happen, and he said, hey, let's do, let's get into the Rails space. And we're all like, the Rails space? Hmm. And started to look at it a little bit. We started with a couple of people in an office a block down in the Flood Building, this old historical building in, uh, in Powell Street. And um, really, that was a little over two years ago. It was September of two years ago, um, and we started from that building a little internal project, um, but we really wanted to, we, th- we thought there was a lot of opportunity in, in the rail space, we thought it was going to be, uh, we really liked what it did in terms of uh, developer performance, we liked how dynamic it was, we liked how testable it was, it really had all this great stuff that we really thought we could leverage for customers. So you really took a little bit of a risk actually trying to start an office built around Rails when you maybe didn't have a whole lot of customers at that time who were demanding it. We had no customers who were demanding it. No, 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 at the okay. beginning of the time, it was like, well, we would love to do this thing for you, and we'll do it for less money if we can do it in Rails, uh, which we don't have to do anymore. Um, and Because we think it's going to be really cool, and it's going to save you a lot of time. And um, some of them went for it. They took a big risk, too, because it was very... I mean, this was very early, obviously, and... Rails is life, and we didn't know very well what we were doing with Rails. We knew Agile, and we knew OO, but we didn't know. Obviously, as as is so typical with new developers to Rails, there's a lot of there's a lot to learn in terms of just idioms and 
and style of programming is very different from from other languages. So. Now that internal project, Josh Susser was just showing me the pivotal tracker. Yes. Is that the in- internal project that, that you started out? That is indeed the very first thing we started writing. And that's used pretty much just internally to manage projects, although some of your clients also use it to manage their own productivity and that's process. Right. Yeah, we, uh, we really developed it for our own use. Uh, we have some big clients that use it, and we have a couple of external customers that have, that have big enterprise licenses for it. But um, really, we used it. It's, it. it's an embodiment of our process. Um, before that, we were using index cards and, and wikis and spreadsheets to manage process because the tools that we were, that were out there, we we looked at them, but they didn't. They weren't a great fit for us. They just didn't. They felt like too much administrative work. Um, and obviously, like I said, we needed a starter project, so we figured, oh well, let's build a tracker. Everybody's building a tracker. This was back when. Everybody's first project was basically, you know, backpack kind of thing. <laughs> yep. Um, so we did, and we really liked it. Um, I mean, at this point, it's really more of a JavaScript application than it is a Rails application. I mean, there's a little bit of error at the bottom, but mostly it's this whole event system and, distri- you know, distributed JavaScript application running in the browser. But... Yeah, it did seem very responsive. You've got mm-hmm. different columns, and you can define things, and it's very... Uh, it doesn't seem as much a set of goals, but more tracking what you actually are doing and yes. how far you are into a project and, and what's left to do. Right. The core of it is around user stories. I mean, the whole thing is built around uh, user stories being something that's supposed to represent some actual business value to an end customer. And so there's this interaction between the product owner, the customer, and the development team where sit down and, and create these user stories like user can log in, user ha- you know, place page displays users associated with place, things like that. And so each of those turns into a story, and then the developers will estimate how much how complex that story is. Uh, but the product owner still gets to own sort of what the order is in the backlog. So it's basically this big list of stories. Um, there's the current iteration view. There's the everything in the backlog. There's a big ice box for stuff that isn't scheduled yet. But there's this big list of of all the stories for the that that are currently scheduled, and the product owner has then total control over what order those things get done in. So they understand the cost of it because they've been estimated by the developers uh, in points, these abstract points. Um, but then when they actually go to, you know, and the developers keep track of where they are in, in working on the story. So they'll market started when they start working on it. They'll market finished when it's checked into the version. They'll market deployed when it's pushed to the demo server. And then the customer comes back and says, yes or no, that's what I wanted. There's an accept or reject button on each story. And they get to then, you know, basically approve the story or not approve the story. And then they have this very tight feedback loop so that we're always building what the customer actually wants instead of just what we thought seemed like a good idea. That does seem great to really build them into the process. It's yes. part of what the... It helps the developer by mm-hmm. helping them know what they should work on, and then right. the customer can also give that feedback. Well, and it gets rid of this adversarial, oh, well, you've promised that this 20 large things would be done in two months, and but we wanted all these other things in addition. And then this... and. It's, it's shortcuts a lot of discussions that end up being really problematic. The, the, sort of the core of the tension between product management and development is often about product owners not trusting developers' cost estimates and, product, and, and developers not trusting product owners' shepherding of the product. So by making it very 
sort of clean cut that the, the developers own how much something costs, but the product owners get to choose which things based on that cost information they think are the most important. It's very it's very decoupled and it's very easy then just to say, okay, well, we're, we haven't started on that story yet, so there's no cost in doing this other story first. Um, which is really nice because, especially in the startup space, uh, that's the kind of thing that changes a lot, like from day to day or from board meeting to board meeting or from, oh, we just got this new investor and he's really into mobile or... That sort of thing can really affect uh, schedule, and and as long as people's perception about what what's being worked on is consistent with what's actually possible, you get a very functional relationship between product owner and developer. It seems like some of those things were built into is where, as if you said, okay, today I want to do these things, it will recognize that you have too much planned, it will automatically yes. shove the lowest priority thing off the list out into the, into the, the next, next day iteration. or the backlog yeah. or whatever. So basically what happens is it's, it's really this force-ranked list. There's no... So it's not, it's not so much like you have to... Because one thing that happens with product management all the time, and this is just human nature, is they say, you know, you ask somebody what's the top priority, and we say, well, this one and this one. No, it's like, no, which one? <laughs> so if it's in order, because it's in a list, and you have to drag it into some order, there's implicitly this force-ranking of which story is the most important. Um, so once you have that, and once you have velocity, like once you have an estimate of how much, what the duration is going to be, like how complex it is, this again, how we estimate it. Once you know how many points you can do in a week, if you say you have two two-point stories and one one-point story, and your velocity is 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 six, you know that you actually have one more point in there. But so if someone drags in a two-point story at the top of your iteration. Well, that's a two-point story, a two-point story, and another two-point story. That one-point story doesn't fit anymore, so it drops into the next iteration. So it keeps you very honest. I mean, that's the thing that's... It's very liberating in a way because you don't have to make excuses for the facts. And so often developers are making excuses for the fact that something was hard, or you know they feel like maybe they should have done more or something like that. And it's, a very, it's, it's all oriented towards being very sustainable and very transparent. Now, a big part of that is driven around these user stories. Brian Takeda is here. Maybe I'll talk to him sure. later. Uh, but recently, RSpec has these extra features of plain text, plain text user stories built in a lot more. Is that a big relief to have that kind of thing built in? Or were you using other kinds of techniques to go from the user story all the way down to the actual code? They're usually fairly separate from a tracker perspective. The story, there's no real integration between RSpec and tracker. This is just a list of, 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 it's a feature list, really, more than anything else. But one thing that's nice about it is that it's, since everything's very small, like really, there's the description of the story, and you're, and the developers, you know, scheduling it is a matter of dragging it into the right place in the backlog. Starting it is just clicking, a developer clicking a button when they start it, finishing it. It's all just one, these one-button-click kinds of things. There's no sort of extra step of managing the process. There's, you have to figure out what you're building, and that's a, that's a planning meeting where you sit down and figure out what the, what the backlog is. But other than that, there's no extra overhead of sort of keeping track of the backlog. And you get reports like how, you know, what is our average velocity? What's our, our next week's velocity is predicted based on how fast you went for the last, typically last three weeks, the average of the last three weeks, because there's a very strong central tendency. If you actually are accurate in your estimates, you're going to get consistently about the same amount of work done on a week by week basis. And that lets you project way, way further out. Um, as far as integration with RSpec or other tools, 
Um, it's kind this, of agnostic. Yeah. It doesn't really... It's it's not Ruby specific at all either. I mean, we have clients using it for Java projects or C plus plus projects or not even development projects. Uh, designers use it. All sorts of different people use it. So, speaking briefly mm-hmm. just about Rails itself, mm-hmm. you know, two years ago, not that long as far as a period of time, and yet a lot of different features, even some of the core ways that Rails operates, have changed quite a bit. How has that affected how you? do projects and plan for projects. I know that you've built a lot of internal yes. tools and plugins to fulfill different kinds of needs that you have. Um, I mean, the biggest... Uh, coding practices change significantly. I mean, the introduction of REST, for example, was a really... I mean, wasn't really introduced. REST has been around for a while. But the, the, that being sort of the central way that you organize Rails projects, that's something we embraced very early on, and it was a big shift for us. So... On some projects, it was somewhat painful to... Some projects just stayed with their old, old pattern because they were fairly close to being done. But um, it's always there's always a, sort of a little bit of extra work when, when the environment's changing very rapidly. But we usually sort of gain that back because one of the things that is changing rapidly to do is to make the whole thing more efficient. So, you know, does an application that we write today look like one that we wrote a year ago? Really not at all. You know, there's a lot that we've learned about... Rails. There's a lot, you know. There's just there's a lot that we've as collectively as developer developers learned about how to write effective Rails. We, you know, do more metaprogramming than we did when we started. Just we do more mixins. We do. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Some of it's obvious, but some of it's just knowing sort of how the language operates and knowing sort of where best to approach things. Um, where do you think Rails fits in in the scope of things? Of course, we think of Java as being for maybe large scale or certain kinds of projects, and we think of uh, all the way down to just you know a solitary script sure. running. That's um, a really interesting question. I mean, I, th- I, mean, I think um, obviously where it started to get traction was with you know small startups, usually one or two developers with an idea, and it's extremely productive. I mean, I think sort of the core value, there's two core values I see with Rails. One is that it's so productive, so your developers are super fast, you can get something out to market in no time. And and then the other is just how much there's this testing culture around Rails and how much agile process is really embedded into the Rails way of thinking. Um, Those things, so I think the fact that early adopter, the early adopter community was small early stage startups is just sort of natural it's endemic in the early adopter community to try new stuff you know some enterprise isn't going to go build a big rails app the first day because it's risky you know they don't there's no proven track record yep. with it that said i really think that the enterprise is probably where there's a bigger play for it i think you know especially for sort of it oriented stuff for uh, you know i need to build a small application for my work group team to do something why would you build it in anything but Rails? I mean, Java has all the integration history. There's all sorts of tools around, you know, LDAP is baked in or or all sorts of database architectures are readily available, all sorts of web services stuff. There's libraries to do anything that you could possibly imagine. But that said, that's also developing very rapidly in the Rails space. Um, and, I mean, I sort of look at the growth curve of Ruby. I mean, I lived through the whole Java growth curve, too, and it was really fast for, for our, from our perspective then, but Ruby is growing in a very similar way. It's like 
and it has the same sorts of problems too. It, it's really interesting to see the the growth from you know here's the first thing that you can first build something in to the adoption curve and more people building more complex things, people being concerned about performance, being scalability. Um, those are all things exactly the same things that, that Java went through as a platform too. Um, it's but the thing that's really interesting is I think the whole you take the time scale. Java was this you know this big arc that you know it took four or five years before it was a really really big thing. Ruby has gotten to be sort of front of mind for a lot of people in the space of a year or two years. It feels like the whole growth curve is like the Java growth curve, but two to three times as fast. Well, maybe that means that in technology we're actually learning something and reapplying things that we <laughs> we already knew instead of just reinventing. Yes, this learning thing is cool. It's good to learn from your mistakes. And, and the good things you did, too, actually. Well, speaking of mm -hmm. small-stage startups, one of the things I have talked to some other people about is the fact that you will pair with another startup and sometimes just kind of get them, get the kick in the pants to get them off and running and then hand a project off to internal developers. For example, you're working with Grokit right. and they have some brilliant developers yet yes. there and yet they've expressed a lot of appreciation of working with you and having that be a part of the process. Why do you think that works? It seems like people would want their own developers to be working on their own project and yet it helps to bring in a big established team. Right. Well, there's a couple of things there. Um, in terms of how that transition happens, it's actually fairly gradual and so it's not so much that we hand it off at the end but it's more that we sort of train them up on our process as we're developing with them. And the other thing is it's very hard to hire a, a big team and a good team quickly. So one of the, thing, so one of the things that typically happens with uh, a project is they'll come and they'll hire us. Either they already have a development team or they don't. Um, usually it's a couple developers if they have their own team. or More often they, don't have, they haven't gotten very far with hiring yet and they need to get started. They want to get in, out into the space really quickly. So we can field a large team. We can field, you know, if they need even eight or ten people on a project, we can field that. Um, typically, it'd be more like two to four to six, um, and we can get started right away. We ha and we can get started with a lot of experience in the rail space. We can, uh, you know, the best practices here are all around. You know, we do test-driven development. We, you know, continuous integration starts right away. We have a releasable product very small releasable product the first week. Uh, demo server is all part of that process. So there's something very... Uh, it's sort of like... If you, it sort of works the way sourdough starter works. Like, you know, you have this little sm small seed population that knows how stuff works, and then you can build from that, and then you introduce new developers into it, and they're, they, they're joining this living ecosystem that's already very established. The, you know, the patterns are already there, and they can really hit the ground running much more effectively than trying to sort of bootstrap that yourself. It's like cutting out the whole bootstrap phase. So it's more than just manpower of, oh, okay, here's a bunch of extra developers to work on this project. It's also you're leaving a mark on how they go about running the project. Absolutely. So, and the other thing that we do a lot of, in fact, all the time, is pair programming. So that's a very powerful way to transfer knowledge about process, but also about the code base that we're developing. I mean, the most important thing at the end of the day when they leave and go out on their own is that they know how to maintain their own code base. You know, 
a lot of outsourced development is sort of like, oh, we'll go build you your prototype, and then we'll hand it to you, and here are the keys, and here's a little bit of documentation about how it works that's out of date because tests, you know, because there's no tests, and it's really just like the doc, the, it's the architecture document that probably none of the developers read, and so instead of that kind of paradigm, it's really more let's build something together. You know, we'll everyone will understand every part of the code because we also rotate the pairs all the time. So there's there's no sort of knowledge silos. It's not like we're trying to hold in all our knowledge. Our business model is very much about sharing what we know about the world. Uh, and we learn from our customers all the time too. I mean, it's very it's a very um, it's a very rewarding space to be in because we're working on new projects all the time. We see a lot of different application types. And we can transfer that knowledge to our customers and their developers. And so typically, you know, we'll start with a larger percentage being our people at the beginning. We'll help them hire. That's actually something that most other consultants don't do. Um, we'll help them, you know, find talent. We'll help them interview talent. Um, Rob has this great interview technique where we'll, he'll sit down and pair with somebody for an hour. Um, he'll do, he'll drive. The other person will just be, you know, drive, driving the process by talking through the design problems. And, you know, this interview process is really good at weeding out. You know a lot about the developer before they, they start. Um, so even the CEO is involved in the yes. hiring process. Yes. For our customers, even. Not even just for us. Okay. So he's interviewed you know, hundreds and hundreds of developers. Um, probably thousands. Um, and then, so we'll help them hire this team. We'll, we'll help to evaluate whether or not they're even going to be good at Agile and writing tests and will you know be a good team fit for this thing that's growing this you know this this product that's growing inside you know that we're sort of incubating here and that team will then be able to keep running with the project after they leave because they'll they'll know all the practices they'll, they'll know all the tools um, sometimes they're not, you know not even rails developers when they start they're just really good OO people or really good testing people uh, more often lately we're seeing lots of good rails people coming in obviously Two years ago, there weren't a lot of good Rails developers. But, so that's sort of the story there. Well, last question. With this great process and a great uh, bank of developers to work on different projects, uh, is there any interest in developing your own products? I talked to a small four-developer team mm -hmm. yesterday, and they're kind of splitting between consulting and, and developing their own products. You've developed your own tracking tool yeah. are there is that a goal of the business to also use the knowledge that's here to, to build your own project products or do you feel like it's more valuable to stay in the consulting space I think culturally we're much more of a consulting business than a product business and I think I've seen hundreds of times I'm probably exaggerating but I've seen lots of times where uh, a company that's really good at one thing will try to get into another space and really not be very good at it and I think, you know, we try to have the discipline to say, you know, that's... I mean, with Tracker, that's a great example. There are, you know, if we were a product company, if that were part of our DNA in a big way, that would have been out a year ago and people would be using it and all the people listening to this would have heard about it already. That's not really what we do. What we do is we build great technology for people. We build it for ourselves, too. But in terms of just getting the product out there and doing that whole product design and vision thing, that's... We're, I think we do. We create more more value in the world by uh, helping entrepreneurs to re realize their vision than by doing internal product development. 
I mean, that said, there's a lot of stuff that where it is really core to what we're doing and it's very clear what we need to build, like something like Tracker, which embodies our process, or we have a social media framework that we've built because we keep doing social media stuff for all our customers, and that's a licensable product, but it's very sort of, it's frameworky. It's, you know, a bunch of components rather than, here, you know, here's your thing to do some task. But so in general, I think we're not a product company, and we know that um, we are really good at technology, and that's really where we want to focus and process. If you haven't recently, you should check out PeepCode.com. We have a new unlimited plan that gives you access to all PeepCode content for a full year, on sale for only one hundred and thirty-nine dollars per year till this Friday. <laughs>